This morning we're beginning a new series. I hope that's obvious with the the reading that we've just had from Genesis there. Uh, We're calling the series A Life Less Ordinary, and it's a series of studies in the life of Jacob. I'm smiling as I want to share this. We, We think quite hard about what we preach here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. That might not be evident at all. You might wonder, why are they doing that stuff? Why are they doing it now? We think extremely hard about which parts of God's Word we preach and when we choose to preach them. So I wanted to try and tell you quickly where this fits in, try to put this series in the life of Jacob into a bit of context. We spent a few months before Christmas looking at the letter of 1 Peter, uh, written to a a network of Christian communities scattered uh, around what is really modern-day Turkey. And we recognize that those communities were not like the church in the West of the last hundreds of years. They had no privileged position in their culture. They were increasingly facing persecution and opposition. And for this reason, we thought it might be a good thing to look at those communities and particularly what God in his word said to them as we follow Jesus Christ. Because we're now living in a culture that's increasingly pushing the church out of a a privileged place in the center uh, onto the the fringes and the peripheries and the margins. So I I hope we learned some useful lessons there for how to be God's people in this time, this culture, uh, and we call that series Everyday Church. With this series that we're starting today, we're going to try and zoom in a little bit from a looking at the church to looking at maybe something a bit more like an individual life. And my prayer is that we could learn and see more of God's glory in our everyday lives. Because truth be told, most of us wonder, I think, what place our everyday has in the purposes of God. Our studies in the life of Jacob, I hope, are going to show us that God meets ordinary people in their everyday lives, and he calls them to do extraordinary things as they live and work with him. So let's get stuck into the text here. If you have it open before you, uh, if you don't have it open before you, you'll miss quite a bit, so I'd encourage you to do that. Um, Chapter 25 of Genesis, page 26 in your pew Bibles, and beginning at verse 19. You'll see there in verse 19 that we're told that this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. That phrase, by the way, this is the account of, is a, a recurring pattern in the book of Genesis, and it's used to break Genesis up into 10 sections. The Hebrew word for for that sentence or that idea of the account of is toledot, and there are 10 of these throughout um, Genesis. Let me show you this quickly. This is an interesting way to help you understand the book of Genesis better. So you should flick back to chapter 2 of Genesis. So there you have the first heading of the first Toledot. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So the first account is of the heavens and the earth. If you flick over to the next one, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the account 
the written account of Adam's line. The second one is of Noah, chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. If you flick over to chapter 10, verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're the three sons of Noah. Uh, And then it goes on. So by the time we get to chapter 25, we've reached the eighth of these sections. A Toledot begins, it tells you the name of the person, but it's not the story of that person. It's always the story of their ancestor or their ancestors. So this is uh, the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. But it's not going to be about Isaac. It's going to be about his sons. And in particular, as we'll see, his son, Jacob. So all that to say that this is the story of Jacob. I could have said that more quickly, but then three years of theological education would have been wasted. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, Okay. Verse 21. There's a wee bit of Isaac stuff here before we begin to encounter Jacob. He's praying to the Lord in verse 21. Isaac is because his wife's barren. If you haven't read or heard teaching on the book of Genesis recently, you you may not know that this is a recurring theme in the book of Genesis. We find this family, this family of Abraham that's been promised countless descendants, more than there are grains of sand on the sea or stars in the sky. There's, There's barrenness runs often in the family. That's the way it was with Abram's wife, Sarah, until the supernatural arrival of Isaac. It's going to be that way with Jacob's wife, Rachel, in the future. And it, it is that way for Isaac here. We'll pick up that question maybe when it comes to the Jacob and Rebecca uh, experience of it. But I want to say right off, that this repeated experience of barrenness in these opening generations of the family of promise, they serve to highlight something. And it's this. If there's going to be a community of faith, it's not going to happen in the natural way. It's going to be a community of miracle. God himself will have to give it life. Isaac knows that. He's maybe learned that from hearing the story from his father Abraham. So he learns to wait and to pray. The narrator doesn't keep us waiting too long for the outcome. He tells us that the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. As usual or often is the case in Genesis, it's a really skillful piece of writing. Before we even start this Jacob's series, I want to tell you, these guys are genius writers. And I want you to start to tune your ear to see the way they write. So he doesn't keep us waiting to see that the prayer's answered. But he keeps us waiting until the end of the birth narrative. Look at verse 26. To tell us that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to her sons. Isaac was 40 when he married Rebecca, and he's 60 when their first son or sons appears. 
The narrator doesn't spell it out. He leaves us to do the sums for ourselves. Isaac's been waiting and praying for 20 years. I love Eugene Peterson's comment on this passage. He says, people of faith wait a lot. Julie was reminding us of that. We tend to admire, he goes on, we tend to admire the results of faith, but we don't want to participate in the process that forms faith. Yet the years of barrenness are as much an experience of faith as the moments of conception and birth. Isn't that so true? Much of this life of discipleship with Jesus Christ that we have been called to, this is all about waiting. It's about waiting for the life of Christ finally to be formed in us when everything in our personality seems so stubborn to his transforming work. That's, that's a long wait for any one of us. It's about waiting for the new life of Christ to be revealed in, in that member of our family whom we've been praying for for years or for a neighbor or a colleague or a friend or in a church. We've been waiting for years and we're still waiting. This is a large part of the life of faith. Not long after Rebecca realized that she was pregnant, she realized that she was carrying not one but two babies. And she realized that because of the upheaval in her womb. The guys were prodding and poking each other. I can't imagine what it's like to be pregnant, and I certainly can't imagine what it's like to have two people fighting inside of me. But that's what's going on here for Rebecca. These boys are struggling and fighting in the womb, and it really only just foreshadows the kind of life that they're going to share together. God predicts to Rebecca not only that she'll have these two rival sons, but he also predicts a little bit more. He says that the older is going to serve the younger. And again, here's a, here's a pattern playing out from the, the biblical account It was the younger Isaac, not the firstborn Ishmael, who was reckoned as the true heir of Abraham. And again, this was God's choosing. It seems that in these early accounts, God wants to go to great lengths to demonstrate his sovereign choice and how it takes priority over the normal way of things in human institutions. Folks, we need to stop again here. We just need to get into these stories and learn the the rhythms of them. Let, Let them teach us. Because what we see here is God orchestrating the early history of his people. And we're reminded here that God really is in control. Whenever he continually overturns the rights of the eldest son and in his grace gives leadership, to someone else of his choosing, when he reverses the natural order of things in that regard, God's showing that, that he, he stands above 
We were talking about this recently in, in the discipleship group that I'm leading. And we remembered that Jesus, when he chose his disciples, he didn't go for the obvious people. He didn't let the, the smartest or the wealthiest apply to him to become his disciples. No, he, he reversed all of that and went and simply in his grace chose some unlikely people. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Folks, maybe, maybe there's a great deal of hope in this for you this morning, if only you can hear it. Sometimes our lives feel like we're prisoners of fate. We're told that the world is tilted in favor of the strong and of the rich and of the beautiful and those who passed their AQE and got to a grammar school and got the right tertiary education. Life is for these and the rest of us simply make up the numbers. That's the way the world works, and there's nothing I can do about it. God's sovereignty tells us otherwise. God can turn it all on its head. He can reverse whatever orders there are when it suits his purposes. God does what he pleases. Whenever the time came, sure enough, uh, Rebecca gave birth to, to sons, and there are two boys there. The first one looked like he was wearing a red, fleecy, fleecy bodysuit, is the way I'm reading it. Now, I've never seen a hairy baby, so I, I've seen babies with some hair. But So they called him Harry, which is fair enough. I think it's, there he is, Harry. Um, and then a minute later, his little twin brother's born, and he's grabbing onto his heel. So with this, this propensity for literal naming, they call him Heel. So, hi, here's Harry and Heel, uh, our two new sons. Aren't they lovely? Twenty years they'd waited. And here they are. Esau and Jacob. We can already sense just the way the narrative is written that these boys are not the same. The distinctiveness of them is highlighted at almost every possibility. They've been fighting in the womb. They look different. And the narrator builds up this sense of their, their uniqueness, their contrastedness, if you keep reading on. So look at verse 27. We're told there that Esau is this strapping outdoors kind of a guy. He's Mr. Duke of Edinburgh Gold, Bear Grylls, whatever. He's, he's that kind of a guy. And Jacob, he's a wee bit more cookery shows on the TV. He's at home with mom, swapping recipes. These guys are different. They're very, very different. But an unfortunate thing plays out in their difference because we're told that that seems to have separated their parents. And favoritism, which, as you know, is a a massively destructive thing in, in any parenting. It seems to be right at the heart of this family too. We're told that Isaac loves Esau, 
He, he's, he's a carnivore. He loves a good steak or a good piece of meat. So he loves his son who's a hunter. Rebecca, who knows, enjoys the company around the tent. Uh, a son who stays closer. When you read it, I, I'm going to say, folks, it all seems very strange to me because this is the family that's carrying the blessing of God. We'll go back only one generation to Abraham, that great moment where God intervenes in human history, chooses a guy in his family and says, you're it. You're the vehicle for my blessing to the world. I'm going to bless all nations through you. And and look at this family. Could he not have chosen better? Did they have to be so ordinary? Did they have to reflect our own families quite so much? Sometimes we imagine that God's people are, are perfect people, are good people. I, I think we're prone to think that way before we're Christians. We look into the Christian community and we think, well, there's something about that people, I mean, they don't smile a lot, so they must be good. There must be some redeeming feature to them. They're, they're good and I'm not. We imagine. And then once we do come into the family of faith, often that subtly remains the case. Only now we're on the other side of the equation. Now we're good and they're not. The people are outside. So God's people are good, we say, and others who are not yet following Jesus, walking with him, are not. Folks, you can only sustain that view of the world if you don't read the Bible. Okay, if, if that's how you see things, I'd encourage you to go home, find the Bibles on your shelves and put them safely out of reach where you'll never read them again. Because the Bible tells a different story. It tells a story of God choosing the foolish people and the weak people of the world and offering himself in grace to them, inviting them to follow him to be his people. And he does it for this reason. He does it so that it's patently obvious to everyone watching that the glory is his and not ours. Folks, if that verse is true, if God chooses the weak and the foolish of the world, we're here not because we're good. It's because we're the losers. I hope we believe God's word about that. Jacob's family isn't perfect. It's not even good. And the family of God is the same always and today. We're doing sort of a lot of introductory stuff, building up a picture, who's Jacob, who's his family, but, but there is a bit of something I want to think about with you for these last few minutes in the last part of our passage. It tells of the story when Esau sold his birthright. So he'd been out hunting, maybe a bit like the farmer we read, uh, heard about today, maybe he's been on the go a long, long time. He comes back home and he's starving, and I'm going to guess before he saw the food, he smelt it. And that thing happens that happens in you when you're starving and you smell food. 
I need some of that stew. So he asks for some, quick, let me some, have some of that red stew, I'm famished. And Jacob agrees, but, but my goodness, what an opportunist. Not without driving a hard bargain. I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. What is the birthright? The birthright is the status of the firstborn in families of this kind of a cultural time and place. Whoever had the birthright got a double share of the family estate. Uh, and one day they'd be the leader of the family. So it's, about, it's not only about wealth, it's also about leadership and influence. It, it was transferable. So what's going on here is actually is, is fine legally. But it wasn't something anybody would dream of giving up except in the most extreme circumstances. So in the light of all that, Jake, you're thinking Jacob's chance in his arm here. How, how's this going to work? Who, who gives up their inheritance for a pot of stew? Who on earth would ever give up all those long-term benefits for one moment of instant gratification? Who on earth? Well, Isaac on earth. Or, or sorry, Esau. He's hungry. He wants to eat. What good is a birthright whose benefits I'm going to have to wait to enjoy when I have appetites that are driving me now? So Jacob sees his opportunity and with a bowl in his hand, he says, swear to me first. And Esau does just that. Swears an oath and he gives his birthright to his younger brother. Look again at the narrative. Watch the skill of the writer. See the way he tells this story? He leaves us, I think, with a very clear impression that this whole thing doesn't mean a whole lot to Esau. We read that when he was given the bread and the stew, he ate, he drank, he got up, and he left. So Esau despised his birthright very skillfully written. What are we to make of this incident? Well, as I read it, I don't think either of Isaac's sons cover themselves in glory here. Esau clearly takes after his father. We're told in verse 28 that Isaac had a taste for wild game. These guys, when we're told in these short, pithy sentences about who they are, it's, it's all about their appetites, their stomach. The Bible versions here have toned down Esau's desperation for the stew. The Hebrew says something like this. Let me gulp down some of the red stuff, this red stuff. He's only interested in the present, in the tangible, in his appetites. So the biblical assessment of Esau isn't positive. In Hebrews 12, believers are warned not to be like godless Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. What about Jacob? He doesn't seem to be a great fellow either. He's clearly a schemer. He's somebody who knows how to manipulate a situation to get what he wants out of it. He exploits Esau's hunger and his misery and his, his lack of compassion. It stands in stark uh, contrast to his, his grandfather, Abram. Abram was a, a man of hospitality. And here Esau, or, or Jacob, sorry, 
is proving to, to be exploiting hospitality. If his values are right, and we'll come to that, his methods are appalling. And we're left thinking that if anything good's ever going to come of Jacob, it's going to take a lot of work of God's grace to do it. So let's wrap this up. I don't think, well, maybe I am giving the game away when I say that in the end, this story will become a story of how Jacob follows after God and is drawn into life with this God of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. Jacob is the one on whom God's rest, his blessing finally rests. Why is that? They're both flawed characters and in some ways they're as bad as each other, but why is it that that Jacob is the one who finally lives under the blessing of God. Let me suggest it's this. It's because of his appetite for God. We've seen this morning the great lengths that he'll go to in order to win this birthright. It's no normal birthright. This is no normal family. This is the family of Abram, the family on which the blessing of God rests. And this is the family God's going to use to bless the entire world. And these boys knew that. They'd grown up on their grandfather's knee where they'd been told, sorry, they'd grown up on their father's knee where they'd been told of their grandfather Abraham and God's call in his life. Isaac will have told his sons about this family that they're a part of. And do you see what's happening in this episode right at the start? When Esau sells his birthright, he's saying this, I know I'm part of the family of promise, but do you know what? It doesn't mean all that much to me. As long as there's a meal on the table, clothes on my back, a roof over my head, I'm fine. This thing about being the people of God, it's no big deal to me. He doesn't value God's promises, doesn't care if he's part of God's plan for the world. That's why Esau finally ends up living outside of God's blessing. Jacob finally ends up living under God's blessing, not because he's a good guy, but because he develops an appetite and a hunger for the living God. Tell me this. Do you value your birthright? What do you mean? Didn't know I had a birthright. We do. Each one of us, created by the living God, redeemed in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. We have a birthright. We are called to be children of the living God. We've been called to a life less ordinary. Jesus' invitation, do you remember it? Early in those gospel accounts, he said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is available to you. Leave behind the life that you're now living 
and come and live the life that you were created for. Come and live under my blessing and my rule. What are you doing with your birthright? There's a calculation that Jesus asks us to make. And he talked about it a lot in the Gospels. We were talking about it in our discipleship group this week. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then he went and sold everything that he had and bought the field. Folks, life with Jesus, he says, is going to cost us everything that we have. But when we make that transaction, it's the bargain of a lifetime to leave behind whatever else is an offer and to say, yes, I'm going to follow him. Jesus called the life he offers life to the full. It's about becoming the person that God created us to be. People outside the church genuinely think that God's out to kill our joy, don't they? And we live inside the church in a way that reinforces their suspicions. Is God out to rob you of fullness of life? Is that the cost of fidelity to him? He gave his life for us, therefore be miserable for me for the rest of your life. Is that the transaction? Is that where we think it's at? Folks, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus Christ doesn't deny us personal fulfillment. He shows us the only place where real personal fulfillment can be found. I love the way Dallas Willard puts it. He says, Jesus wants to keep you from selling your birthright as a daughter or son of God, a birthright of genuine goodness, sufficiency, and power for which we were fitted by nature for a mere bowl of soup, a little illicit sex, money, reputation, power, self-righteousness, and so forth. Folks, don't go wasting your life on your basic appetites. Allow God's Spirit to kindle in you, to awaken in you the appetite that's in the heart of each one of us. That desire to be in relationship with the living God, to live the life that you were created for. Life with his son, Jesus. A life less ordinary. It begins when we begin to recognize in us and to foster an appetite a hunger for the living God. Let's pray.